Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 106 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And before I talk to you today about today's guest, we have had another review on the podcast. And this was left a while back, but because it was on a different continent to me, Jackie, I didn't see it until this week. So Albie176 from Australia says, great variety of guests who share their wealth of knowledge in anything keto and beyond. Jackie and Louise ask the right questions to their guests to share their experiences. Highly recommend five star ladies and a heart. So thank you, Albie176, for leaving the review. And we would love you to leave a review and rate the podcast. This helps people decide whether to listen or not. So today I'm interviewing Dr. Campbell Murdoch. Dr. Campbell was recommended to us by Dr. Chris Barkley from episodes six and seven and Graham Phillips from episodes 19, 29 and 82. And it has taken us a while to get Campbell on. I met him at the PHC conference in May and was able to ask him personally to come on. So here we have Dr. Campbell Murdoch. And Dr. Campbell Murdoch is a GP with a special interest in metabolic health. He works in an NHS practice in Somerset. He is a co-founder of Preventative Healthcare Group, a UK company focused on providing reliable, accessible and useful services to improve metabolic health and related conditions. So let's go to the interview. Welcome, Dr. Campbell, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be with you. And we always start by asking, where in the world are you? So I uh, I live just outside Bath and I spend most of my time in the southwest of England uh, doing doing GP work and a number of other activities uh, related to uh, improving people's health. Brilliant. So why don't you start by telling us your journey to low carb and um, did you use it for personal reasons or was it how did you come across it and what made you incorporate it into your practice? So, so I'm a, I'm a GP. I qualified as a GP back in 2007, and um, one of my reasons for being a GP actually is I'm kind of really interested in the whole person, in truly improving health and well-being, and and really solving problems. Um, it's kind of sort. I love love science. I love tackling problems, but also really applying that to the to the whole person. And general practice was the perfect career opportunity for that. And then for me, I moved after qualifying as a GP and went straight back into some studies in uh, uh, organizational behavior, managing change and, and teaching. Um, and then 
on to studying sports and exercise medicine. The reason for studying sports and exercise medicine was because um, really interested in kind of human health, well-being, performance, and realised that athletes do a fantastic job at peak performance and kind of thinking, well, how do they do that? So um, whilst working as a GP, I was studying postgrad sports and exercise medicine in, at Bath Uni. And it's a fantastic discipline because it, it's because it's relatively new. It encourages you to challenge a lot of what you've learnt and a lot of the, the kind of preconceived medical ideas that you've been carrying around. Mm. And um, so through the studies of that and combined with me as working five days a week, 12 to 14 hour days um, as, as a GP, um, started to get pretty worn down i think if i'm if i'm honest and also this kind of production line model of medicine which um is the short appointments generally ending in a prescription um whilst kind of burning out and slowly it's dawning on me that actually the, the impact i'm making per per unit of my energy seems to be quite minimal at some days and i'm kind of closing down these consultations and hopefully staying to time i, I started wondering what difference i was making so these two things are really running in tandem, this, this busy, busy, busy GP work, plus learning about sports and exercise medicine, having my beliefs challenged. And then about 2012, um, with the sports and exercise medicine, probably started to get exposed to a bit of Professor Tim Noakes' work, who's uh, yeah. really well known in the sports and exercise medicine world, and uh, Peter Bruckner, who writes the, the, the textbook you study if you, um, if you study sports and exercise medicine. So this kind of helpful challenge, bit of exposure. And then were, about they, to, were they already low carb by that point or were they still on the... Uh, so I think it was around 2012, I think, Professor Noakes started to publicise a bit more about what, what he was up to. Yeah. And around that same time for me, it's always hard to piece together the exact time frames, but I was filing patients' blood results. As you do at the end of the day, you get this wallop of all the tests that have been done that day and you have to file them. And one of the common tests is what you call lipid profile or people think of as a cholesterol test. But with that, you get total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, LDL cholesterol and triglyceride. Yeah. And typically that just gets the, or back then it was just a total cholesterol is what your eye looked at and made a decision of what you're going to do with that result and filed it or acted on it. Um, but you, you start noticing that half the population's triglycerides levels are high and uh i can still remember actually i was off to a bed one evening with my uh with my phone as you do and I was walking towards the bed just googled what causes high triglycerides mm. and within about 30 seconds um started to uh recollect a lecture i'd had at university in medical school in the late 90s on uh, metabolic syndrome and um with metabolic syndrome one of the things is high triglycerides so that night i spent i had probably had about two hours sleep i was gonna say <laughs> right working all day and then you, you do something like that for last thing at night you're gonna be down the rabbit hole not not sleeping at all yeah so i spent the night reading from research articles research articles, and, and kind of had a couple of hours sleep fortunately i think it was a, probably a friday night so um was exhausted and i kind of woke up the next morning and, and it felt like i was I couldn't quite sure the world I had emerged into because everything I've been reading all night made sense. Um, the recollection of the lecture I'd had at university on metabolic syndrome kind of linked in. Um, 
but then this kind of dawning on me that this isn't what what we're kind of I guess practicing and why are we just filing all these triglycerides? wasn't alone in just filing triglyceride test results and ignoring them if they're high so that really kind of was my effectively reawakening I guess to that medical school lecture we had had and then um, I think the world was rapidly changing then so Professor Tim Noakes was starting to publicize a bit more and because I was familiar with him from the sports and medicine medicine world there's a kind of element of knew who he was and the trust that had built with that um and then for me this ongoing challenge of being extremely busy with patients and wanting to do something useful and feeling my way forward so then um with that again with patients are amazing they they there's nothing better than real humans to remind you of what works what doesn't work what to worry about what not to worry about yeah um so seeing patients regularly and then kind of moving from this concept of type 2 diabetes being a chronic progressive disease to it being a potentially reversible condition if i'd just been reading the literature at that point and hadn't seen real people i would have been left just as confused as ever but actually seeing real people and kind of having enough understanding to start taking a step into well let's start you've got type 2 diabetes high blood glucose let's start reducing the glucose in your diet i reduce the carbohydrate and they'll look it gets better <laughs> kind of, yeah it sounds ridiculous now, 10 years on, doesn't it? But it, yeah. it was it was still quite novel. Um, and that was, yeah, that was the, really the start of it. Then for me, one of my kind of driving forces is how can I have the most positive impact on the world per unit energy whilst I'm on this earth? And you start to realise the more you kind of look into insulin resistance and metabolic health that actually the vast majority of the stuff that can change people's lives and save the healthcare system and stop social care collapsing and make you feel like you're doing something useful and and helping people to be healthy it's linked it significantly links into this yeah and therefore that's a good place to spend energy so uh, it's about yeah looking at the whole person and then working out what works for them i guess yeah and so for me i'm i'm um I'm really passionate about, again, I think probably patients have taught me not only is everyone's physiology different and how their body works different, but they're different. Their psychology is different. Their, 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 their opportunities are different. The kind of curveballs, life's throwing them are different. Uh, how people change, are they somebody that kind of just wants the facts and they go away and do something all in, or are they somebody that needs to take one step at a time and there's complex other psychology going on behind the scenes? Um, you build all that together and realise actually there is there's definitely no one size fits all, but there is some physiology that makes some sense. Yeah. And there's this awareness we can make a real difference. So we can metabolic health thing, high blood pressure, um, type two diabetes, fatty liver, um, and then all these other conditions that are linked into insulin resistance. Um, um, we can, we can actually make a measurable difference to it. So it's not some woolly, maybe if we, make a change we might see some benefit you just get this measurable improvement and, and, and people get better yeah are you low carb as well so for me um so i, I i'm always so one of one of the things about i'm very cautious about naming okay and that the reason for that is they mean massively different things to different people um so, so describe what well, describe your your so, uh, describe what i don't describe my journey so as my eyes were opening to this stuff you um you obviously think I want I want to be healthy myself and this makes sense. And 
obviously dealing with people with type 2 diabetes, it's very obvious. It's like, do X, Y, or Z, and glucose comes down, and they lose weight, and they feel better, and they come off drugs, and, and yeah. that's no debate for them. And then there's what somebody wants to do for them as an individual. So you start shifting, you start realizing actually loading yourself up with sugar is not a great idea. And for me, perhaps four Weetabix for breakfast isn't the best breakfast in the world. Um, so you start shifting. And then, um, kind of real bearing my personal situation, the uh, I would have been around about 2015, I think, 2016. I um, became ridiculously busy at work and trying to find better ways to shift the healthcare system and had a couple of other jobs. And uh, one day I uh, we'd driven down from the Lake District back down to Bath and I got out of the car to go to the supermarket on the way back down and I went to put my foot on the ground and I had quite a significant pain in my uh, lower abdomen. Wandered around the supermarket and pushing the trolley and thought I was going to faint and just felt really terrible. And I thought it was a combination of driving and then wandering around the supermarket just <laughs> sort of favorite activity in the world um but then kind of went and sat down and my wife was with me so she finished the shop we got back in the car went to bed got up the next morning feeling pretty terrible but i was supposed to be back at work so as you do just really tired most of the time anyway and when do i feel sick when do i not feel sick who knows i'm just exhausted so get into work and uh, i haven't got time to be sick and um got through that day woke up the next morning Felt pretty terrible still, but um, went to work. And over three, four days, kind of the pain started to ease off a bit, um, but not completely. So went and speak, spoke to my GP and they sent me off to see a surgeon. And I, was, I think I've got appendicitis. Yeah. <laughs> Fulfilled every criteria I'd ever met for appendicitis. And uh, this surgeon, because I'd left it, I think it started to calm down. The surgeon's like, I oh, know you'd be sicker if it was appendicitis. Um, anyway, a few months later, i would had a variety of scans where it had shown nothing, but I had this ongoing vague discomfort. Um, but we never pinpointed it. So I spent a year of uh, thinking lower abdominal pain is normal. And when my two-year-old was jumping my tummy, you get pain, and that's just what it feels like. And I ran a couple of marathons that year, so obviously was still functioning, but um, um, but this discomfort was ongoing and, and I felt kind of fatigued a lot of the time, getting night sweats sometimes, which anyone medical listening to this was thinking there's something probably was wrong with you. <laughs> anyway, I, think, I think anyone not medical would think there's something yeah. wrong as well. <laughs> um, but then about a year later, I um, really severe pain flared up again at work and my good colleagues walked in whilst I was seeing patients like Campbell you look terrible and I, was like, I think I'm okay he's like you look terrible <laughs> so he phoned one of the consultants at the hospital and I'm like, I think you should see him anyway went in and basically had a significant appendicitis on the CT scan um, but the relevance to all that long story was the operation turned out being three and a half hours with quite a big scar from it because everything had just I think it must have burst and adhered and Oh, a load of scarring inside, so they had to pick it all apart. But that meant I had three weeks off work afterwards to recover, yeah. which never would normally happen. So that three weeks off work was a great time just to dive into more of the literature and, and around insulin resistance, metabolic health, low carbohydrate diets. Fitting with that, about two, three weeks before this significant reflare up of the appendicitis, I'd signed up to do my first ever ultra marathon. 
which was going to be so this was early december and i signed up and the ultramarathon is going to be in june a race called race to the king which is about 52 miles running along the south downs way and um so i signed up for that immediately got appendicitis three weeks off work learned a bit about low carb and kind of went all into low carb because i kind of had more time to immerse myself in it personally this makes some sense and from an endurance sport point of view it makes some sense then had a few months with no running at all because i was repairing yeah then did a few five 10k kind of slow training runs on my own and i remember then doing one really slow 17 mile training run on my own then race day was coming along and basically done no training and phoned my friend who i'd signed up with and said uh listen this is ridiculous i've not trained for this um this, this perhaps should just drop out and he was like well we signed up together just start and you can always drop out as you go so i was like fine anyway by this point i've been um properly very low carb so keto in, in my diet yeah and uh i had, I had uh, made myself some uh things that weren't keto for the race but i thought i might need a little bit of, of sugar so i made some date balls with some cocoa and peanut butter so yeah. near the aid stations on these things are going to be sugary drinks and flapjack and all the rest of it. Anyway, so started 30 miles in, I was in absolute euphoria. Just I remember feeling really good. My friend, good bloke who had, but who was not, uh, hadn't, he was on the kind of typical carb loading, higher carb diet, was properly having ups and downs, crashing, getting to an aid station, refueling. And I was just eating some of my date balls every now and then. <laughs> And uh, anyway, finished it. wasn't a record time. I think it was like 11 and a half hours or, or 10 and three quarters hours or something like that for 52 miles. Finished it. Felt pretty good. Got up the next day and thought, I wouldn't want to run that again today, but I can get up and go to work and I'm feeling fine and full of energy. wasn't aching. So for me, I came away from that thinking, actually, I didn't train properly. We didn't go to break the limit, so we weren't pushing the boundaries. Yep. But finished 52 miles in a reasonable time. And I'm still functioning. And I suddenly thought, right, that, that's got to say something about fueling. Yeah. And humans probably don't need to train for the Olympics to be able to go and hunt a deer or go out all day foraging. It's, yeah. um, so that, that was my journey, which then kind of really sold it to me. Um, as far as I know, I didn't have any other health problem and the appendicitis wasn't linked to kind of not being super low carb or anything like that. It's just one of those things. And I wasn't trying to fix some weight issue or anything like that um but yeah really never looked back since then and now from a personal point of view again as i said i don't really like framing what i do because there's a tendency for people to understand different things and then you create your identity linked to that and that takes like you again can't adapt as easily when you need to um but i probably now follow a pretty much a standard diet is what you would call low carb um <laughs> And just real food real food yeah yeah and that's what i do excellent so um, yeah <laughs> that's the personal story i think we i took you a bit off track there because i was going to ask you a question but i can't remember what it was now <laughs> so um so with your story is there anything else that you because i interrupted you is there anything else you wanted to tell us about it before you before we move on so I, I think, I mean, for me, it's, it, that's the personal story. And again, as a, as a GP, you have this wonderful world of being able to see lots of different people and knowing how different different people are. 
Yeah. And I think the benefit for me is I kind of sussed out what works for me. Yeah. Um, there would definitely have been a, this makes sense. And I wasn't overweight, but I definitely, there was a little bit of a belly that would have improved when I, when I did that. Um, but equally, this isn't necessarily what the next person, patient that walks in should be doing. But it kind of, I think probably me learning about it for myself helps you learn the practical elements that from a patient point of view is, is you've got type two diabetes and you want to reverse it, reduce your carbohydrate. But what does that mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> really? so, so the personal benefit. And I think the other thing I like about looking at lifestyle and food and what we eat is it, it's not just about fixing broken stuff. It's not just about getting to the start line. It's, it's for getting the best from life and peak performance and no matter where you are in that continuum, my kind of belief is there's always room for improvement and it's improve the engine, improve metabolic health, improve your internal engine. Yes. Yeah. And in a way we should be learning this well before we need to get to our doctors. Yeah, totally. And I think it's um, one of my challenges as a GP, which links into a lot of the other work I do now is how do you, how do you start these conversations in practice? How do you, uh, how do you, somebody comes in with a problem and there's a bit of learning to do before you can kind of land, land the answer or the solution. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the work I'm doing now is kind of how we improve that level of knowledge people have, um, which in reality is not really healthcare. It's, it, it, there's a big demand on healthcare because of what we're eating and the poor health because of that. But actually the information of how the body works and what we need to do with the lifestyle, it shouldn't really be the remit of a doctor. The remit of a doctor is to diagnose problems and unpick things and and treat it. Not kind of the analogy I sometimes use if you're hitting yourself on the head with a hammer every day and you've got a headache. The doctor's role should not really be to say stop hitting yourself on the head with a hammer. It should if you've still got the headache when you stop hitting yourself, then maybe the doctor gets involved. But we 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 are surrounded by so much in wrong information information advertising information mostly it's it's advertising information you know telling us what we should be doing but they're just adverts trying to sell a product but they they are imprinting into our brain and um i'm probably quite a bit older than you but we didn't have all this focus on food advertising when i was a kid it was just beginning to to come in um with the chocolates and the coca-cola and things but there wasn't huge amounts of it at that time but now everybody is just bombarded all the time with advertising and everywhere even within the schools you know there's there's this focus on getting them onto ultra processed foods all the time so that they think it's normal and they think it's the right thing to do yeah i think there's a lot of a lot of what you've said is is again i see um the consequence of my clinical practice in that I've yet I've yet to meet a person who says I want to be unhealthy. Yeah. Or um, I want to be overweight. Nobody wants to be overweight or I, I don't care about my health. There are people obviously on different journeys and got different pressures on and different interests. But most people don't want more pills. Most people want want to fix a problem. Um and I think what one of the things that really what is frustrate distresses me is when people are doing their best and what they think they should be doing and they're getting sicker um, is, is really wrong. Um, so for me, one of, one of my um, 
passion really is. I think high quality, reliable health information should be freely available to all. Um, the challenges around that is how do people understand what is reliable and and useful and what can be trusted, what can't be trusted. From my point of view, why should anyone trust me more than they trust the next person who's saying it's fine to eat a load of refined carbohydrate whenever you want them four times a day? Yeah. Um, so to me, the real key message around let's, I think let's help people understand the basics of how the body works, real basics. And thinking it's some of the things I did, I just got frustrated and thought, let's just go and speak to the public instead of trying to change, battled for a while trying to change how the healthcare system works, which is a, a bit of a behemoth. So I just started doing talks in the local village halls around um, Somerset where I do my GP work. And um, I was doing quite a bit of focus on type 2 diabetes because it's easier to describe yeah. the kind of mechanisms there. And at the time, my uh, oldest daughter was four. And I was sitting on the sofa before the talk, just finishing the slides. And I said, to her, Arabella, if you, you had too much sugar in your blood, would you eat more sugar or less sugar? And at the age of four, she, she got the answer right from proud of her, was, should eat less sugar. Um, so that evening I was doing a presentation and, and I taught them through how much glucose is in five litres of blood or eight pints of blood in the body. Normal blood sugar is about one teaspoon or five grams of glucose in all that blood. Yeah. Um, glucose is made by the liver or you get it from your food and sugar or it's broken down from starch. Into sugar. So I taught them through all that and then said, if you've got too much glucose in your blood, would you eat more glucose or less glucose? And obviously everybody said less glucose. And then you can move on to talking about, well, what does that mean with your food choices? And everybody immediately understands it. They get it. They can cut through the noise um, once they've understood those basic first principles. Um, so for me, getting that really can be quite basic information out to people is key. And that then people come to this knowledge in a way that makes sense to them rather than what I, I don't think works for a number of reasons is you've got type 2 diabetes, therefore you need a low carb diet is there's too many questions in there mm. if people haven't been taught through the steps um, and equally people are different so how low and what if you do want some beers on a friday night and a packet of crisps and you're not going to give that up what, what does that mean can you still improve things yeah um, and we um, know the answer to that is yes yeah it just, just depends on the level of health that you want as and to what you're willing to give up and what you're doing the rest of the time. So yeah. patients that three pints of ale and a packet of crisps on a Friday night was almost sacrosanct. But the rest of the week and the weekend, ticking my boxes and, and they get fantastic improvement. Other people doing the three pints of beer and a packet of crisps would lead to a pizza after that. Another three pints of beer the next day. And before they know it, they're struggling. So it's that, it's the, let's give you the basic information. And, and then, as I view it, what levers need to be pulled? Yeah. And which leaders do you want to pull? And let me do a phrase. Let's, let's know what success looks like. Let's know what's possible. Know what levers can be pulled. Now do something and let's see what happens. Yeah. And if it's not improving, then there's something, there's something that's going wrong. What is that and what do we do next? Yeah. And, and like you say, everybody's different and everybody's going to want different things. So for one person it might be like three pints of beer and a packet of crisps and for other people it might be going out for a pizza with their kids it's it's all different yeah. stuff that people that drive people and motivate people 
but if they can have that pizza and continue, but that we know that there are people that can't have that one pizza or a slice of pizza and, um, and can't get back to the way that they want to eat for the rest of the week, then that's a problem in, in and of itself. I think you're spot on and that speaks to, so uh, another one of my jobs I did for about three, four years was um, working with the NHS England, um, what's called the Time for Care teams, all around how do we improve the delivery of healthcare in general practices and that was across the country and it very much to do with what they call quality improvement methodology, which is always all about continuous improvement of processes. So you're really looking at what are you trying to achieve? What's your goal? And this yep. is for this is for an organization level, not individual patient, but it directly translates. So what are you trying to achieve? How do you know a change will be an improvement? So in effect, what are you measuring? What are you looking for that's going to change? And then what changes could lead to an improvement? And then go and do it and see what happens. So you can obviously look at how a GP practice works. We've got 100 patients need to be seen. We're always overrun, et cetera. Like, let's change something. We Let's put another person to work or let's give more telephone consultations or whatever it is. And you go and practice that, do that stuff and see what happens. You look at um, health, any anything related to our behaviours, and you can do that exact same thing. So, uh, and this fits with what you call person-centred care. So what are you trying to achieve? So you always start with, for me, I start with what somebody's needs and what's their, what are they trying to achieve? What's their goals? The next step is let's, well, let's do a bit of an assessment of, of one of your physiology. Let's see what your body's actually doing. And also a kind of a self-assessment. What behaviours are you currently undertaking? What, what's your, what are you currently eating? What are your current, uh, what's your current movement? What's your current sleep? What's the current stresses? Um, then you build in what's, what's your preferences. So if somebody's a vegan, they're a vegan. If somebody's a carnivore, they're a carnivore. Um, we need to recognise that and then build the options based on all that information we've gathered so far and then make some choices. Yeah. Knowing that we there's a there's a large variety of choices in there, but that's there are choices to be had, and then it's well, let's go and do that now, and let's see what happens. How long if you were if you were talking with a patient like this, and how and how long would you expect them to go away and do the doing for before they came back to you and say mm, this this isn't working? So for a there's so many different scenarios. So I think if somebody was there was no kind of psychological challenges going on which if i'm honest 90 percent of people there probably is but if somebody's kind of just right what's the practical steps i need to take i can go away and do it there's going to be no hiccups is there's just let's just follow the stuff i'd probably say to them i'll see you in three months yeah um they would have seen massive gains within that but the three month point there's no point pulling them back further because uh, sooner because why would you yeah. um, they're on that journey if it's a case of let's go and do something and you need the motivation or you need some feedback or you're the person's a bit confused about what they're doing or they need a bit more support then i think the within the confines of how the nhs works i think a, a two to four week check-in would be useful um now if somebody's going to do a proper low carb or keto diet you generally speaking i warn them not uncommonly you're going to have one to two weeks of feeling a bit fatigued um there's a lot of change happening in those one to two weeks you shouldn't feel unwell but just kind of take the other pressures off your life and and go with it but by week two you should be by or beginning of week three you should be starting to feel better and i kind of explain many patients will tell me that suddenly they forgot to eat lunch and the trousers were getting slack on them 
So by that point, I'd, I, certainly as a GP, I wanted to see them. Is Have they managed to go through that transition? And actually, again, as a GP, it's all about safety. So things shouldn't be going wrong. There yeah. shouldn't be problems occurring. Um, so it's kind of the professional responsibility there to check in. Um, but something really goes for it to improve their health. They're going to see massive benefits if they really went for it within one to two weeks, like notable benefits. And three to four weeks, they're often a new person. Mm. Um, but there's multiple facets to that. And some people just want to tweak their diet a bit and one step at a time. Other people are just going to go kind of cold turkey oh, yeah, and everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of it is personalised, isn't it? Um, yeah. And then over time, you've got, as, as I guess many listeners will know, some people do really well on a proper full-on keto diet. Other people have met plenty of um, patients who, I don't think we've had the same issue in the UK that they had in the States, where it's like, how much fat can you eat? Yeah. I don't think that really happened in the UK, but you kind of hear what's going on. People are like having to get their fat macros in. It's like almost there's you can have as much fat as you want, and just if you're not having enough fat, then you're not keto. Yeah, and mm-hmm. plenty, especially I've seen perimenopausal, menopausal women just do not lose weight. Like they might improve the blood glucose, but the weight does not shift um, with that uh, for many of them. Some of it will, yeah. but for many it just doesn't. So there's that then tailoring. That's that's me. That's where I am because I, you know, I came to this from being extremely overweight, and and diets don't work. So being able to eat the fat and eat tasty food and not feel hungry was a real bonus for me. But actually, it's got to the point now where the weight isn't shifting, and I know what I need to do is cut out the cheese and cut out a lot of the dairy and reduce the amount of fat that I'm having. Um, but it's a work in progress. Yeah. It takes it takes time when you're when you really enjoy that that sort of food, it takes time to to make those adjustments. Yeah. And it's habits, isn't it? I think that's probably just the same for many people that have been eating chips or a or a or a sandwich. It's that same brain shift, isn't it? I think this comes back to like why are you doing this? Yeah. And, and link it to that important reason and then also it's the other thing to do with patients is if they do look keen but they feel a bit daunted by it and and just like in your situation be well let, what do we think will work because again i think the confidence that the change is going to work is really important if, you, if you're not 100 confident that it's actually definitely going to work it, it's harder to take that plunge and then i'll say well let's do it let's do it for for, for for a month or two months or three months after that again you go and choose whatever you want to do but let's really go for it and that seems to like like the cheese you might love cheese let's let's just go two three months and just just going to do it and there's a really important reason why you want to do it and let's just let's just focus without that and that seems to then help take the brakes off because it's not a i really love cheese and i can't imagine not eating cheese like just like you said about bread and yeah yeah i I uh, go through phases and i go through phases where i um i will naturally not eat cheese just doesn't occur to me to eat it and then I'll go through other phases where I'm specifically keeping myself off of it um but I I think what I need to do is is really do it for a a period of time but I'm sure I have done it for a period of time but I seem to go back keep going back to it so I think there's part part addiction there as well on the on the dairy cheese is a common one i've found actually with yeah. people and, uh, i made a mistake earlier on in my clinical practice of saying to people it's okay to eat cheese 
as, and that translated into without making it explicit you can eat as much cheese as you like expecting for many people they might have a piece of cheese uh, yeah. people yeah. are coming back and they're eating a block of cheddar every day yeah no, that's... reaching their goals and i was like so have you dropped your cards i'm like yes it's like have you really a bit like in the old days of have you really gone on a low fat high carb diet to fix your type 2 diabetes and yeah yeah better um, also you know what is is very um that people might um get confounded by is an ounce of cheese is actually not very much at all yeah so if you're only having one or two ounces of cheese that's only a, it's only a, a, a small amount and you can you can think oh i'm having an ounce of cheese whereas actually you're having two or three ounces without even mm. knowing it I think you're right. And so from a, again, from a clinical point, so we know all this stuff is fixable, but from, from a health point of view and everyone will, from a kind of a body shape point of view, which I'm, I'm not a big fan of weight as a, a measure of anything because it's, 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 it's kind of a crude measure, but if somebody has that personal goal or they want to reduce their waistline or whatever, we know it can be done. And when it's not happening for me as a clinician, the most important thing if possible, is to get accurate information of what's being currently being done. And the biggest challenge around that is people don't either don't remember or don't consciously know, just like you mentioned. Um, but actually, just like if you're trying to improve our organisation functions, if you've actually got some good quality data as what's going on, you can then make some informed choices about, okay, which lever do we need to pull a bit more? Um, so that's in the perfect world with my patients, I basically say, go and record everything yeah really everything. and only need to do it for a week or even three days often yeah and then you go okay let's look at this what are the obvious things in here that are maybe coming through and then kind of which ones do you want them want to change and then fitting with that i mean for wouldn't probably work for reducing cheese but from a type 2 diabetes point of view or people are struggling to improve their just general insulin resistance and metabolic health is monitoring like the blood glucose the, the continuous glucose monitors are just amazing yes in that because they are giving that instance of some of my patients i'll i'll um get them on a uh, continuous glucose one like a freestyle library for two weeks and tell them to record a food diary as well and there's a few things you discover one is what people thought they should be doing and what the conversations you've been having for months sometimes a year or two you thought you were speaking the same language and then you get this data back that doesn't make any sense if the if they've been following what I thought they were doing. Yes. Yeah. Asking, what, what, what happened there? And it's like, well, I had porridge for breakfast. And I said, Why did you have porridge for breakfast? It's because it's a healthy option, despite this year or sometimes of talk about reducing carbohydrate. Yes. <laughs> so that's that's yeah. that's really powerful. And equally, the, the feedback, the, you can watch the speedometer and things like that are really powerful. So the measurement in whatever we're doing to help to support behaviour change, to unpick problems, and to help kind of decision-making around what to do next, I think yeah. is, is um, really, really helpful. Do you think Freestyle Libres will become the norm in the NHS for people trying to manage? I, I, I think it'd be great if they did. I think the, the challenge the NHS has is it's, well, the reason the NHS exists really is for what's called acute care. So you've broken your arm. And you needed it fixed. And I think that, that was just the origins of the NHS. It's healthcare when you need it. Yeah. Um, and the the medical model, what we call the acute biomedical model, model is you've got appendicitis. <laughs> you need an operation. 
it's that intervention model. Um, and so the NHS and most of the funding mechanisms um, are very much based around where's the broken part? Here's the intervention for the broken part. So we look at the freestyle libre, it's, it's being used now for type 1 diabetes. And that kind of fits that model. There's a, it's all about the glucose and safe dosing of insulin and, and things like that and monitoring and preventing hypos. Um, what, and, and then you look at what's the general understanding of what's going on with people's health. So this concept of insulin resistance, even though it's been known for decades, and to me, it is the, probably combined with mental health, insulin resistance plus mental health are probably the two reasons the healthcare system's overwhelmed. Yep. To me, it's such an important area, but actually if you don't see it through those goggles, why would you pay for anything to do? Why would you pay to see what's going on with somebody's diet and insulin resistance? Yeah, but that's the short, that's the short vision way of looking at it though, isn't it? Because we know if we, if we got more people interested in lowering their carbohydrates, dealing with the carbohydrate toxicity and all those things, the insulin resistance, then the pressure would come off the NHS. I mean, if by people, hundreds if, of thousands of people. Yeah, we fix insulin resistance, um, which is, uh, to me is fixable. It's not a big, it's not a big ask. It's it's um, it's definitely doable. It needs multiple parties and collaborations and approaches, but it's it's not it's not a difficult from a from a science point of view. It's it's, it's not not a challenge. The um, I think one of the questions is, is what's the NHS there for? Um, and if you think 60, 70 percent of the adult population are insulin resistant yeah um i think there's some data from the states just a week ago that now only seven percent of the u.s adults are fully metabolically healthy oh gosh i think everyone had been quoting 12 percent. yeah there's a study came out a week or two ago that says it's now at just seven so you look at that and you think although that's what's driving the demand on the healthcare system is it and there's arguments either way I, I, i would love to give every single one of my patients a freestyle lever or something to, to to do and then build training programs around that and, and we we can get the reliable information and again I, th- I think benefit of being a doctor and the nhs is that in theory there should be no other vested interest it's not trying to lead on to another benefit that wouldn't really benefit the patient it's it's for somebody else's gains yeah so it, it sits in where healthcare should be um but i don't think the nhs will go there wholesale i think I, I hope it will shift more type 2 diabetes which we're starting to use it with some people with type 2 diabetes but got patients that because i can prescribe them to whoever i want i'll prescribe them to people with pre-diabetes or some people struggling with obesity that the kind of unpicked everything still don't quite know what's going on and use it even just for two two to four weeks and you start to see oh here's the problems cropping up and again it's that people doing things differently than they thought they did or sometimes just needing that it's a great visual cue isn't it yeah it's amazing amazing i had a client and she um her her job is is making cakes and she does all sorts of cakes so she does low carb cakes she does gluten-free cakes all sorts of things depending on what the person needs but she had so i got her to get a um, freestyle libre for two weeks before she started working with me or the 10 days before working with me and then we we started to see the changes as she was making changes as we went along 
Um, but just her licking some of her cake mixture, she'd get a massive spike. So that was really key information for her because otherwise she would have probably carried on licking her fingers, uh, licking you know the bowl or whatever it is, and she would have continued with that. But when she saw the ma- it was a massive spike, um, and she recognised it herself. She said, "Don't go mad at me. I had some of the icing." So her seeing that was was so beneficial. Yeah, that visual objective information. That's again, our, our brain can play a lot of games with with us. And the other area I find, so the in my clinical practice, the number of people that are suffering from reactive hypos, reactive hypoglycemia, so low blood sugar after eating something sugary. Yeah. Uh, not just something carby, something refined, starchy. I think there's people spending decades suffering from that every day. They're feeling terrible and shaky. Um, really, really common problem. But no awareness of why, what it is, just think it's them with some previous poor advice if you just need to eat more often, yeah. stop the drop, um, which really was the recommendations that were given, which is is slightly mind-boggling. But actually, things like the Freestyle Libre, you can see what's happening. And that 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 data is um is data, isn't it? But then okay, what what does that what what does that mean? What should we do? Yeah. And it's not some imaginary the doctor thinks this is what's going on and and they follow this diet, therefore they're telling me to do it. You, you can get away from all of that. It's it's personalized and it's it's objective yeah. and, and measurable. And and it's them. It's they they can see it and they can see what mm. they can change. And I think when you've got a freestyle Libre and you've you've seen those ups and downs and then you st- and then you you stick to low carb and you see it flat or almost flat. You, you can tell that's what's making the difference. Yeah, that's right. And then what's really interesting, and, and um, the counter that, you get people arguing, well, why should you not have peaks when you eat some food? And I think which, uh, there's a long debate you could have around that. And, and um, um, But then the question comes as well, what are you trying to achieve? So actually, for the vast majority of people, those regular peaks will be associated or related to poorer health and they could they they could experience better health and so actually you're then using that data so regardless of what somebody else thinks about whether it's a bad thing that your blood sugar goes up when you eat some cornflakes it's well let's use that data what does that mean for you what are we trying to achieve let's use that measure as a, as a to guide some changes and now let's reflect a few weeks later of how you're feeling what else has happened mm. um I think that's that again. It's that personalised, personalised approach versus these kind of battles that sometimes go on about what's right or wrong, what's the right or wrong thing to do. But having objective information tied into a person's goals is is so powerful. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm seeing. So you're a GP. We've had on lots of GPs on on this podcast. We've had on some nurses, dietitians, um, even in my local surgery. Because I, I don't know if you know, I'm a PHC ambassador as well. Um, and I've managed to speak to the diabetic nurse, and she said, "Yes, we now recommend low carb um, and intermittent fasting as standard information. You know, we we give it out. We tell people how." how can we speed up this process of getting doctors on board and getting them to see the benefits of 
changing, I guess. Yeah, so I think it's um, taking me back to my large scale change work. I did it. So, what's the what's the shared purpose? Is really important. Of, of who, who are the who are the stakeholders involved, in, and what are their needs? What are they trying to achieve? And what's that shared purpose within that? There's then a large piece around reliable information and education. Um, I think that's a really important part. And going back right to what I said at the beginning is naming something is always dangerous until people know what that name means and the emotion attached to it. So you'll find if you if you went to a GP surgery that hadn't really had any exposure to low carbohydrate diets, hadn't really been aware of the evidence that's been published, and you walk and say you should be offering low carb. It just it will land really badly, I would have thought, for, for, for obvious reasons. Um, versus let's focus on what we're trying to achieve. So we're trying to achieve healthier people. Mm. And to do that, we need to share useful information. We need to provide support for people. We need to um, provide that within the constraints of, of the NHS resources, but also how the NHS functions. Um, that's our goal, mm. is to make people healthier. Now let's look at how we can do that. Um, and then there's a there's a there's going at the speed. I think the phrase is sometimes you pace match then lead. Yeah. So you kind of run beside somebody for a while and then meet them um, where they're at. Meet them where they're at. And then from a healthcare professional point of view, like there's a load of stuff I know very limited amount about, and I'll follow standard kind of. I think the low carb thing is probably standard guideline. It fits with guidelines now, but it, it, to change things faster you need to know a bit more about it. But so how, how do we help? How do I help colleagues not only understand this stuff, but then go on to deliver it? Because this stuff isn't designed to be delivered within a 10-minute appointment. No. Um, so, and this is what I was saying before, it's not really the doctor's, it's not really doctor work, if I'm honest, much of this. It, it presents itself to the doctor, but actually doctor's job is really to diagnose when things are going wrong and not understood and pieced together a kind of the Sherlock Holmes bit. Not, you've got type two diabetes. Here's the latest evidence, the American Diabetes Association paper from 2019, the nutrition therapy for people with prediabetes and diabetes, which really clearly spells out, eat real food, <laughs> reduce sugar, enjoy non-starchy veg, enjoy enough protein, and then it states the most evidence exists for reducing carbohydrate, um, whatever your other dietary preferences. So that 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 data is all there. But then, how do you how do you deliver that? So if if there's members of the public or PhD ambassadors or the last thing a busy GP wants is somebody saying, "Here's what I'm interested in, and what you're doing is not right, and you should be doing this," and we're going to land it in a world that. If, phrase that you don't is alien to you or has a different connotation mm. and you're responsible and and from a point of view of healthcare delivery as well the, the doctor is accountable for what goes on if something goes wrong whether it's due to coincidence or cause the doctor's got to answer yeah. to that um and i think again this goes back to this isn't some of this is health clinical healthcare. But there's so much can be done outside of that. Yeah. So how do we do it though? 
how do we get to well, that point because you're you're saying it's not in you know it's not the doctor's remit to deal with this but therefore we need to get to people before they need to go to the doctor so how do we do that i mean the school information are still giving out the eat well plate um which is 60 percent carbohydrate yeah so that so that yeah so that's effectively the public health bit which um i guess has a from the hierarchy of how decisions are made for national recommendations that's that's a that's a biggie to to to, to change um the flip side is, and when you're linking this in, I guess, from my work as a GP, but linking this into the conversation around what's a GP practice there to do and what's it not there to do and how can it work with the community, which is very much the shift. We're kind of, there's a big drive to try and stop there being a moat and a drawbridge around primary care or GP practices and actually let's work with communities and, and develop this. The massive features around information, um, reliable information within communities, how are we changing the conversations in playgrounds? Um, when I think for me, when a let's say a next patient I see has got type two diabetes, I need the, I need something that's as easy as a prescription to send that patient in a direction. But equally, it's got to be acceptable. So it's got to be it's got to be safe. It's got to be a known quantity. The yep. patient shouldn't have to pay. Um, as soon as you got all those layers, you can't go there with it. Because I, I as a GP, I can't signpost somebody to one resource that they have to pay for it's 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 against the rules so that's how do we produce these reliable trustworthy information and, and services and then there's nothing wrong with people providing paid for services in the nhs or commission services but that that doesn't fit really neatly into the into the mechanisms but i think there's loads that can be done i think there's but it's it's multi-task and then i think it's about making alliances so it's not about the human brain has a horrible tendency to do an us and them. Mm. As soon as you've got an us and them, you've got dichotomy like happens in social media, which is very engaging for the brain, but but it becomes it becomes unhelpful. So it's about creating alliances and shared shared goals, shared purposes, um, and people bring bringing useful things and collaborations to the party. And for me, it's, that doesn't mean about moving slowly. It doesn't mean about kind of softly pandering around things that could make a difference to people's health, but it means doing it. It's kind of going as fast as the fastest person rather than going in for a battle. Mm. Either people get on board and catch up or they, they're just not relevant. Um, and yeah, so it's a big, it's a big topic, but it's, it's so hard, isn't it? Because we we're here. I mean, you're here with me and I'm doing the podcast because we want to get the word out and we want people to have an option. You know, this is an option. We're not saying you have to do it, um, but we're saying it is an option. And ideally, if you came across this information before you get sick, then all the better. But how do we how do we get it out there quicker and easier to even just the people that are open to that information? I, the other bit, again, I'm no uh, marketer, or but I guess what I've learned from my patients, and, and, and I understand insulin resistance and metabolic health, and spend ninety nine percent of my life thinking about it. So to me, it's incredibly obvious, incredibly straightforward. If you, if you understood that, you'd realise every modern disease, pretty much every modern disease is linked to it. How I feel today is linked to it. Why would I not want to do something? But actually, if you don't understand metabolic health insulin, you don't spend your life immersed in it, it's totally irrelevant. And you have no framework to fit to it. So 
I think it's really about what matters to somebody, whatever that hook is, and finding that hook and focusing on that. So although I'd love to say to every well, 60% of the patients that walk in, your problem's insulin resistance, let's fix that. You can't do that. It's like your problem's pre-diabetes because that's what, that's the diagnosis they've just had and therefore that's important for them. Um, for other people, it is about, I want to be fit for the summer or I don't want to be a burden to my grandkids or I still want to be able to walk my dog or I'm worried about dementia because relatives had dementia and I want to lower my risk of getting dementia or the other area that's horribly treated or managed polycystic ovary syndrome which um strongly linked to insulin resistance or never promise anyone any but i want to improve my fertility um that's it's what's that individual's need at that moment in time in their in their life um the problem i found is it sounds like snake oil if you like that's exactly the word that was in my head is snake oil so it almost sounds too good but again if you if you take a hammer to your head every day and the whole population is doing that, everything we'd see in the healthcare system would be bumps, bruises, broken skulls. As it was meant to be. Because that's what happens when you hit And it, each one of those problems is a result of the same issue. But because everyone's doing that, we, we kind of see these issues as separate entities and, and therefore it almost seems unbelievable that they could be the same answer. Mm. But um, again, that's where that basic education comes in of how the body works. Um and build up from there so it's um it's it's manageable but it's it's a long game isn't it and and but you go back to that principle that actually most people want to be well you get rapid improvement and notice rapid benefits when you make appropriate changes mm, yeah there's lots there's lots there's lots to be done there's lots of potential there to make a real difference and then it's like a domino effect as well isn't it? every every or every one person you help will probably want to help two or three other people yes because we all do yeah. we, most of us do <laughs> yeah so dr campbell one of the things um that if we go back to type 2 diabetes and um people are you know they're on a, quite a lot of medication they're managing it through medication because they haven't learned about low carb they haven't had an open-minded gp like you that's going to help them down the what help them you know manage it better before they even get to that point how do how does somebody who wants to go low carb manage their medication so from a one from a GP point of view, but also somebody, maybe somebody hasn't got a GP that's open to low carb keto that, you know, they're not really, they don't really understand it and they don't promote it. How does that patient go about easing themselves in to, to get in with the GP for the GP to even look at their medication? Does that make sense? What I'm saying? It does. Yeah. And there's something really important you're raising there is, is, is safety. So everything we should doing should be improving health, not 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 bringing people to harm. And one of the issues with type two diabetes is that some of the drugs people are on, if they significantly reduce their carbohydrate intake, they could come to harm. Um, and therefore, you need to deprescribe. So you need to reduce medication. Um, sometimes, as or soon after somebody reduces their carbohydrate intake, and the risks if that's not done, in theory, could could be. Fortunately, I think it's rare, but it could be death. Or, um, or or serious ill health. So one of the challenges that exists, certainly as, a few years ago, as more and more people with type 2 diabetes were wanting to do a low-carbohydrate diet, 
is they're on medications and the most or many GPs weren't quite sure what to do with the medication. So even the GP was supportive. There's a bit of a barrier to change because these quick appointments and, and concern about medication and therefore the kind of area then gets skirted away from and suggests we better not change anything because we don't know what to do with medication. So back in 2018-19, um, a few of us, including David Unwin, Mark Cazella, uh, David Caran, endocrinologist, and, and a, a pharmacist, Mahendra Patel, we wrote a paper for the British Journal of General Practice, very simple paper um, aimed at GPs of what to do with medication um, when people move to low carbohydrate diet. The title was Adapting Diabetes Medication uh, for, for Type 2 Diabetes with a Low Carbohydrate Diet, something like that, a practical guide. Um, uh, and basically, this is just a very simple summary of what to do with medication um, aimed at GPs. And it's basically if you're on insulin, patients on insulin need to reduce insulin. If they're on glucoside, which can make glucose go too low, need to reduce that. And on these newer drugs, these flozins that make you pee glucose, then need to consider reducing or stopping stopping those. And, and so we kind of wrote this paper as a bit of a guide. It's not telling anyone what they sh should do for a particular patient, but it um, helps. Out. And really the focus, again, it comes back to safety. And this is a GP's job. So we've spoken that some stuff in this space is not really, a GP shouldn't really be getting involved in what a person needs to eat for breakfast. Mm, yep. that's, not, that's, that's not why the country pays NHS GPs to analyse what they're having for breakfast and tell them what they might eat instead. But a GP should be taking the clinical responsibility for adapting medication, and that's good use for GP time. Yeah. So would, um, you, would you suggest for somebody that is type 2 diabetic on medication and their GP is not really understanding or interested that maybe they should print your paper and take it with them to the doctor and and because things can change quite quickly can't they so how often should they book an appointment to see the diabetic nurse or the doctor or who, yeah. whoever it is really individual for different patient situations but um the british journal general practice paper is, is what's called open access so actually the phc supported that to, to make it open access so anyone can access it and fitting with best practice modern healthcare it's all about shared what's called shared decision making and um person-centered care and what's called evidence-based medicine so you're kind of it's, it's no longer that idea that doctor knows best and patient sits there in an inactive state waiting for the doctor to tell them what to do it's about we've got a problem to solve together let's work at this so um theory every gp should should welcome um patients bringing in information that supports their their care and i think from my point of view the benefit of being in the british general practice is it doesn't get in there unless it's been through a peer review process and it's rigorous and, and it's and it's safe so hopefully gps would would not be concerned about that and and find it a helpful resource so um so that's the dream world obviously busyness of general practice and stressed out gp everyone is burnt out in primary care it's it's, it's again i always say to patients or as we were discussing how do we change this is if you think about your busiest most stressful day and you've done that for four weeks you're not going to be performing at your best kind of either cognitive abilities or from an interpersonal skill point of view yeah. the last thing you want is somebody coming in in a combative mode, ready to challenge you? You're doing what you're doing is wrong. 
it's it's just going to get a the standard human response of of uh, of, of a battle versus really keen to improve my health i understand a low carbohydrate diet could be helpful but i'm on medication here's a useful article from the british general general practice can we have a quick look at what you think might be helpful to do yeah can you help um, me <laughs> yeah and then there'll be some really kind of tired people clinicians um that will be struggling to engage with that but most practices now have more than one gp and nurses and so it's um yeah it's looking for playing the system i guess to get get the help you need yeah so if anybody's listening to has have type 2 diabetes they haven't yet started on the low carb diet i mean that would be one way to do it is to get that paper make an appointment with your doctor and talk just talk to them and say can you help me i want, i'd like to get reduce some of my medication how can we do this yeah exactly i mean that's it that's very much a gp's job a gp's job is to help patient need um what's the what's the patient's concern what they're trying to achieve and and, and support them in that from the clinical aspect of it so um yeah, it should, it should, it should be fine. Again, I, no, I can't think of a GP off the top of my head that wouldn't be welcoming to that. You hear lots of stories from people that they struggled with their GV, and but I think that's it's probably less common than than you hear through kind of third party stories, and as we're led to believe, and also kind of yeah, approach it in a way that you would if you were trying to build the best relationship, and it's more likely to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you have started a company called Preventative Healthcare, the Preventative Healthcare Group, I guess. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so Preventative Healthcare Group um, recently founded that from a number of years of work of how do you help the most number of people in this space? And knowing that actually, as we mentioned, the NHS isn't really geared up to deal with a lot of it. The NHS is geared up for one-to-one -one interactions with patients with acute clinical problems. So Preventive Healthcare Group was founded, I mean, a, and a uh, co-founder, Matthew Gibbons, who's a software engineer by background, with this theory of, right, we need, we have the ability to get free, reliable, useful information out to people at a, at a big scale. And from my point of view, it's, I know the challenges I face in daily clinical practice and what could be produced that would support making that more efficient. If I get a blood test in half past seven at night, somebody newly diagnosed with pre-diabetes what would i want to do so um let's produce some some free guides here's a pre-diabetes guide so we've just launched the pre-diabetes guide www.prediabetes.guide um which will be uh, having additions and improvements but it's basically the important information about pre-diabetes and how to improve it um so for me now with patients um if somebody's got pre-diabetes, I can just say, send them a link, have a read of that, and we'll have a chat in a couple of weeks versus trying to open up these conversations over a non-existent three-hour consultation. Mm. Um, so that's one part of Preventive Healthcare Group is that reliable, accessible, useful information. And then the next part is how do we support the healthcare system to, to meet the needs of people with insulin resistance and the conditions linked to that in, in an efficient way? um and in a, a kind of a person-centered way and everything everything we've spoken about um and then another layer on from that is actually what are those useful resources that people need so i, I very much i love this physiology i love the science i love the kind of principles and then somebody says 
but what do I have for breakfast? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, let's build that in um, with the kind of how-to guides, I guess. Um, but knowing we're very much part of a network of solutions rather than trying to say, here's the, here's the one product you need. Um, and then building the models to support that delivery. So we're currently running um, effectively health coaching groups around metabolic health and insulin resistance for people with fibromyalgia within the NHS. Um, and some of the patients are seeing remarkable benefits. Uh, we're also running programs within um, outside the NHS within corporate organisations and doing what we call a purposeful health check. So on the, on, on the spot, health checks for insulin resistance and then combining that with helping people to build personal health plans and then education webinars for, for, for staff um, and, and a diversity of activities around that. So it's trying to find, uh, do our bit for the solutions that's needed in this space, uh, which again, relatively straightforward, but um, finding a way to do that at huge scale without huge cost to people. Yeah. So almost that that pre-touch point of before the person gets to the doctor, they they have the information, access to the information. So they have access to the information. So they've got their core health understanding. Um, plus, actually, once they've seen the doctor, here's a reliable resource that they can use. Um, or as in many practices, now they're getting health coaches in practices or social prescribers or people wanting to run group consultations. Well, actually, if there's a trusted resource that has all the information you need, the practice can get involved in putting the personnel behind that to support groups rather than trying to create, putting the time into creating all the resources that are needed. Mm, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the ambition really. Is, is And again, let's make it translatable because there's a lot of different languages spoken and and, and with the technology expertise, we've got the ability to do that. Excellent. To kind of meet, meet people where they are. Yeah. So is there... Is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we haven't touched on or anything further that you want to mention? I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's probably just underlining what we've, what we, is, is this, what, what matters to somebody? What are they trying to achieve? Uh, what's their understanding of how the body works? What are their understanding of the levers that need to be pulled? Um, taking as much personal ownership of, of your own health as you, as you can, seeking the advice and help from, from whoever but including the healthcare system needs to support people where it can mm. and and then doing what works um, and continuing the journey and then this bigger collaborative piece like we're talking today and there's so much activity and energy and positivity in this space yeah it's um enabling that to continue building is is, is really important yeah and I think with the doing part of what you just mentioned you know what do you want what do you want to achieve and then go away and do that is also the the review part of well is that working or isn't it working and then where do I go from here what do I need to change next or try next or which like you said lever do I have to pull because there's so many different with with the low carb keto whatever however you define the the spectrum of where we are um there are so many different levers that we can try and we can pull and it's like well what am I going to try next? Like for me, as I mentioned, it, you know, it might be reducing cheese and dairy and the amount of fat, but that's just one lever, but there's so many others that I could try in any given time, but people need to, to understand that and to do what they're doing and then stop 
and review and say, right, what what next? Where do I go from here? Is it working? Yes. Okay, we'll carry on with that. Or no, it's not working. What do I need? What do I need to change? Yeah. I think that's really key. Do what works. And I think that's the benefit of we know what's possible. We know health can be improved. We know insulin resistance is measurably can be measurably improved very very rapidly. So once you've got that mindset, then then it is about this review is really important versus old days of eat less, move more, off you go. Yeah. If it's not working, then it's your fault. It's your fault. Doing what you're doing. It's <laughs> it, yeah. Who knows why it's not working? It's just um and and yeah and then and then it's for patients with pre-diabetes who are properly low carb but just kind of hit a limit and then they built in some squats yeah. and that made the difference um um so it's and also people like novelty people really like novelty so building in a new focus or a new challenge but i think some of this stuff around people kind of switching between diets is partly that novelty to spur them on again um and and um that's okay yeah um, that's good brilliant so how how can people get in contact with you um probably the easiest on twitter at campbell murdoch on, on on twitter is is um is, is the easiest way um the preventive healthcare group website is one of our uh, kind of more person focused brands because preventative healthcare group isn't the catchiest thing for director director members of the public so healthtolife.co.uk um we're just uh, refreshing the website but um um health to life health the word to life.co.uk uh, is uh, where a lot of our um guides and things will be linked linked to from there um and uh, yeah and i'm often around in various conferences and and, and, and places yeah and fantastic podcasts <laughs> brilliant and so leave us with your top three tips so probably summarizing what we've uh, already covered is one definitely know why you want to if you want to go low carb or keto or whatever it is you want to do know why really clarify that whether it's a word a picture a photo whatever it is get that crystal clear in your brain and make it emotional make it meaningful um i think importantly knowing what you're going to do and what reliable resources you're using yeah and getting hold of those to make it easy for yourself is useful and kind of asking what those resources are because it's you know seen some people they've got some resources that aren't the most helpful they go and put a load of energy in and they don't get the goals so getting some good quality reliable resources and thirdly i guess be ready to adapt so don't set out with you need confidence what you do is going to work, otherwise you wouldn't go and do it. But don't set out with the theory is this is who I am, this is this is my identity, and I'm going to stick to this no matter what, even if it's not working. Mm. So it's that review process and adapting to, to what works for you. Um, and, and starting out with that mindset is is I think is really useful. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. What I love about Dr. Campbell is how he's looking to make the most impact for the energy he is using. This really drills down to the decisions about where to spend his energy to get the most bang for his buck. And whether he considers himself a coach or not, I'm not sure, but he's practicing like a coach by focusing on what matters to the person. He asks, what do they want to achieve? What is their understanding of how the body works? 
and what's their understanding of the levers that need to be pulled. Then based on these answers will guide how he helps his patients. Then they have to go away and do the doing. For someone who's doing the doing, I like that. Um, this is where the fabulously keto diet and lifestyle journal comes in. So it could be for somebody who's new to this way of eating, or it could be if you're trying out a new protocol and want to keep track of how it's working for you. So I've been using mine recently for, for doing the protein sparing modified fast and how does that make me feel? So it will help you de define your goals. What do you want to achieve? And then you could log the feedback daily to see how it's working for you. Then you can review how it's all working and decide if other changes are needed or do you carry on in the same way. So it's lots of review and adjusting what you need. And one of the things Dr. Campbell said was about, you know, what levers do you pull? So there's lots of different levers that you could pull. And in episode 99, this was one of the things that Louise and I covered in that episode. So anyway, you can go to the show notes and they can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 106. I just wanted to add that the Fabulously Keto Diet and Lifestyle Journal isn't available yet. But if you would like to be notified when it's ready, you can just contact us on our web page. Just go to fabulouslyketo.com and then click on the contact us section and you and you can send us a message um it should be available within the next couple of weeks on amazon it would be great if you could support us through patreon go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish can you recommend a guest we can interview if you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health 
or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. 